the papers I gave you and flip to tonight. We're going to look at prophecy, epistles, and if we have time, we'll get to apocalyptic. So if you haven't been here, what we are looking at are the various genres of Scripture. In other words, the various types of writing that we find in the Bible um, and how we read them. We've already, uh, we've already looked at narrative, parables, poetry, and last week we discussed the wisdom literature of the Bible. Um, but if you recall, and for those who weren't here, um, I'll just uh, refresh uh, quickly. We, we can't simply open the Bible and read every book of the Bible the same way because they're all uh, various genres. So, for example, um, I can't read Genesis, which is narrative, the same way that I read Proverbs. I can't read Proverbs the same way that I read Revelation or one of the Gospels because they're all various genres. So, one, a narrative I would take very literally in terms of um, how it describes events and everything that takes place, whereas I turn to the songs and the poetry in the book of Psalms, and, uh, and I don't want to take all of those literally. We don't take poetry in a literal sense. So we have to understand genre and how to read those specific genres if we are to understand what the Bible <coughs> is seeking to teach us. So um, I save the... Out of the three we're going to try to accomplish tonight, uh, two of them are the most misunderstood and misused, um, and those are prophecy and apocalyptic literature, which in many ways go hand in hand. Um, but we will we'll talk about those two um, and epistles if we have time. So uh, we'll start with prophecy. Now, uh, each, each of the genres we've looked at, at least one main thing we want to look at and understand about the genres. The thing about prophecy that we need to understand that the basic feature of prophecy, but which also happens to be one of the biggest problems in its interpretation, is what we call the promise fulfillment dynamic. So, in other words, figuring out when, where, and how a promise that is made in the scriptures through prophecy, through a prophet, is or is not fulfilled. Uh, so how do we do that? How do we come to this conclusion of when something is fulfilled in prophecy or where we look to to understand uh, a prophetic uh, utterance from one of the prophets, whether or not it's been fulfilled, if there are multiple fulfillments of that prophecy? All of these things come into play. Uh, and if you, if you spend enough time reading about uh, people's understandings of prophecy, uh, you start to see just how uh, crazy and wacky some of it can be. So we have to be very careful. Um, one of the important things to understand in this is what we would call the prophetic foreshortening of events. Now, I think when we think of prophets giving a prophetic proclamation that maybe we assume they know as much as we do. Uh, we have the whole scripture. We see the fulfillment of the scriptures. Um, do we think that Isaiah, when he was recording the words of Isaiah 53 about our suffering servant, the lamb who was slain, he was um, slain for our transgressions, do we think he really understood what that was all about with Jesus? He certainly, he didn't. He didn't know. 
He was, he was prophetically announcing what God had told him. And in one sense, he understood the sacrifice. He probably understood regarding the promise of the Messiah and how some of these things would play together. But Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, fulfilling the law, dying on the cross, receiving the wrath of the Father, giving his righteousness to his people, raising from the dead, all of these things, Isaiah wasn't, he didn't have the full picture. That's the blessing that we have in having all the scriptures. We know the full picture. So we can read Isaiah 53 and understand what it's pointing to. Um, But they certainly didn't have that. So we have to understand the prophetic foreshortening of events. In other words, when the prophets give prophecy, they're looking out on the horizon and they're seeing a two-dimensional line. So uh, they're seeing something that looks like a mountain range, but they don't necessarily know how many there are or what's there. As we get closer to it, they get bigger, they get more vivid, and then we walk into the mountain range and we realize there's a lot more mountains here, they're a lot more, uh, uh, they're a lot more um, beautiful, and there's a lot more design to them than we ever thought initially. Um, so we have to understand um, that... Their understanding of the fulfillment is very different from ours because we're on the other side of the cross. We can see how all of this has played out. So, uh, for example, and we don't have to turn there now, uh, but in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is talking about the sign of Emmanuel. Well, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us, right. Well, we see a fulfillment of sorts in the very next chapter. It's talking about Isaiah's own son, the birth of his son. But what do we understand this prophetic utterance about Emmanuel to be? Yeah, the birth of Jesus. Jesus is coming and dwelling among his people. So... In one sense, there's a short fulfillment in the very next chapter. We see this fulfillment in the coming of Isaiah's son. But we understand also that we need to get into the mountains a little bit. We need to look around. And as we look around, we see the fact that he's really pointing forward all the more to Christ who would come. (coughs) Um, We see this sort of thing all through the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Um, Think of, uh, we see prophetic activity in the Bible. We also see prophetic words. So the prophetic words being an announcement, a prophetic announcement. But the prophetic activity we see in the Bible as well. So uh, what do we understand from Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him? What do we see there? Very clear picture, right? What is it? Okay, a father willingly sacrificing his son. Does it remind us of anything? <laughs> okay, we see, we see the picture. Now, did Abraham understand what that was prophetically pointing forward to? Maybe in some sense, but not anywhere near what we understand. You realize, you ever think about this? If you read that account very carefully... When Abraham and Isaac are at the base of the mountain, he tells the other men who were with them, he says, you stay here, we're going to go up to the mountain, and we will return. You ever notice that word, we? What did Abraham understand, at least? What did God do when he got there? 
Yeah. He provided another sacrifice. How would he have known that? How did he know God was going to provide a sacrifice for him as opposed to his son? What's that? Okay, he he believed that to be true, but he had reason. He had something to base that on. What was it? Okay. Right. So he understood this promise of God in the covenant fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that all, all the world would be filled with his, with his people. But even before then, we understand God's providing at least the seed of woman. We don't fully grasp everything that means, but she would have this son who would do something on our behalf. He put some of those pieces together to understand, we're going to go up here, I'm supposed to sacrifice Isaac, and I'll go through as far as I have to, but, but we'll be back down. We're coming back. Amazing. It's an amazing foreshadowing of the crucifixion, of God giving his son on our behalf. But you see, there's a small fulfillment there, but then it points forward to the larger fulfillment. Um, The promised land. When we read in the Old Testament, what is the promised land? It's the land of Canaan. Right. The promised land of Canaan. But what is the promised land of Canaan a... Is, is it prophetic uh, a symbol of, I guess we can use the word symbol? What is it pointing forward to? A greater reality of heaven, right? The promise of, we just sang about it on Sunday. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land. That's what we're singing about. Going to heaven, going to the true promised land to rest with the Lord forever and ever. So we see these prophetic things all throughout the scriptures that are pointing forward to something greater. But they in themselves are something as well, right? As the Israelites understood the promised land, they understood we have to cross the Jordan River and get into Canaan and then we are there. Now, here's where, here's where things get crazy Uh, among Christians, and there's a lot of uh, disagreements and debates and everything else. Um, If we understand the promised land to be something that is simply functioning as a means to point forward to something greater, um, we we have to work through these issues of whether or not we have to have a great concern for the, uh, the soil in modern-day Israel. Is that something we're concerned about, or is that something that points forward to something greater? Or another one that is uh, a big issue often is uh, the temple. Do we need to rebuild the temple? Or do we look to Jesus' words who said, tear the temple down and in three days I will rebuild it? What was he talking about? Himself. He was the true temple of God. So you see how very easily prophecy in its interpretation can get very tangled up in a lot of things that a lot of well-meaning Christians um, disagree on. So we're not going to go into all of those right now. Uh, That would take us weeks. But um, we just want to point to this reality that there uh, there are prophetic words, but there are also prophetic instances, prophetic uh, activity that takes place in the Bible. So it's descriptive, it's typological, 
not necessarily predictive. It's not necessarily something in the sense of what Jonah did. What did what was Jonah's proclamation? He said, he came into Nineveh, and what did he say to them? Okay, repent, or in how many days? God will come and destroy this land. He will come and uh, completely, if you don't repent. So, is this unconditional? Is there an unconditional word here that's, uh, that's given from Jonah? There's a condition, right? If you repent, he won't do this. Did Jonah like that? <laughs> no. He, he hated the fact that he was prophetically announcing, if you repent, then God's not going to destroy you. All the while he's thinking, but God should destroy you. Um, and in fact, after I tell you this and you repent, I'm going to go sit on the side of the hill and watch it. I'm just certain he's going to wipe you off the face of the planet. Um, so we see that some prophecy is conditional upon uh, whether or not the people that it's being brought to are uh, obedient to it. So as you read, many of you are studying through the minor prophets right now, as you think through some of those, um, there is a conditional element to a lot of the things that we see in the minor prophets. Now, obviously God knows that the people aren't going to turn from their sins and, and various things, but... At the same time, he gives them that condition. If you repent, if you turn to God, I won't destroy you. I won't wipe you away. So we have to understand there are various forms of prophecy. And this is the, this is the, the big thing to understand as you read it. There's predictive prophecy. This will happen. There is typological prophecy. It's a description or a picture of something that is yet to come in far greater measure. So the promised land, the temple, the lamb, the sacrificial system as a whole. And um, there's also uh, unconditional, uh, uh, excuse me, conditional prophecies. These, these prophetic words that are given that uh, um, if the people obey, if they are obedient to the word, then they will not, um, they will not see the fulfillment of that prophecy. So, um, I just I want us to see that. Look at um, look at the book of Jonah. Jonah three. Verse uh, four is about where well. Yeah, verse four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So we see the prophetic word. God's going to do this. There's, we have to understand there that something is implied. It's this implication of, if you continue in your ways, if you don't repent, that sort of um, implication from this word. Forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown by God. The people understand it. The people, uh, the word reaches the king. So from the king all the way down to the lowest person of the kingdom, 
Uh, we see in verse 7, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So they fast, they repent. When God saw what they did, verse 10, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, so this is a, um, a good example, and there are many examples, but this is probably the easiest to see of a conditional prophecy. Any, uh, any questions about that? Okay. So, again, something to remember with prophecy is that we, we have a major advantage. Now, how, do we, how should we read the Bible in light of this? Well, when we read the Old Testament, we need to write it in light of the New Testament. We read the promises uh, fulfilled in the New Testament back into what we read in the Old Testament. So as I read these prophetic words about the lamb who will be slain, as I read about the sacrificial system and everything that had to go on and how elaborate it was, and everything, I need to read that in light of what happened on the cross. I need to see that back into the rest of the scriptures. Um, and not uh, try and reading it, uh, try and read it forward. Um, so the New Testament determines the ultimate meaning of the Old Testament prophecy, and not the other way around. And remember too, when we talk prophecy, we're, we are generally talking about things that have been fulfilled within Scripture. We see it fulfilled in Scripture. Um, anything beyond that, we are looking more toward apocalyptic literature, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Any questions about prophecy in general and how we read it? Is, is prophecy a literal read-like narrative? No, it can't be, right? It can't. If, if it is, then uh, it's never fulfilled typologically. It's never fulfilled ultimately in... Jesus in the true promised land, in the true temple. It simply rests with these physical elements that are being used to describe something greater. So it's read, it's understood in a way that, uh, that we would look at other elements of literature, like poetry, for example. All right. <clears throat> Epistles. Letters. Where do we find the epistles? I can't hear you guys. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Quiet whisperers. It's okay to be wrong. I won't call you out too bad. <laughs> yes, all, all of the uh, epistles we find in the New Testament. Who are the epistles written to? Churches, yes. Who else? Individuals, right? Okay. All, yeah, believers. Ultimately, in the end, are, there, are any of the epistles we have in the New Testament, are any of them written to non-believers? No, not, the, not anything written as an epistle. Now, we could look at the Gospel of Luke and Acts and wonder whether or not Theophilus was a believer, but that doesn't count because it doesn't fall into the genre of epistles. So uh, Luke gets a bye. The rest are all written to Christians. 
right? All 13 letters of Paul are written either to churches or to individuals. Who are the individuals Paul wrote to? Timothy, Titus, Philemon, anyone else? No, the rest are churches, okay? Uh, Who are the other writers of the epistles? Say again. Peter, James, John, any others? Who wrote Hebrews? Ha, we don't know. It's a trick question. I think it's Paul. (laughs) We had that discussion a while ago. So it's very important as we read these letters, we understand they are real letters written to real people in a time, in a place, in a culture, real things going on in their lives, addressing real problems that they were having. That is very important. We looked at this a little bit several, a couple months ago when we looked in depth at the book of Philemon. But remember, these letters, we're going to see moral issues. We're going to see doctrinal issues. We're going to see issues of leadership and ecclesiology. How is the church to function? All of these things we see in the letters. Now, there's, um, hel- it's helpful to understand basic format if there is one. So all the, all the letters are a little bit different, but there are some common things we can see in all of them. Uh, many of the themes uh, that we see in the letters are very similar to how we would write a letter. So how do, how do we start letters generally? Well, if we're writing a real letter, okay, dear so-and-so, right? Okay, do we see that in Greek letters? Yeah, in essence, we see that. Uh, usually the greeting's a lot longer. But here's something different. Where do we identify who the letter is from in our writing? At the end, sincerely or yours truly, your name. Where do we see the identification in the New Testament letters? At the very beginning, right? We see that uh, if you take the book of Romans, for example. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. He goes on and on. And then it's not till verse 7 we see, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the greeting includes an identification of who's writing it, um, who he's writing it to. Okay, these... These things are more important than maybe we first uh, take into consideration. I think we've talked before as an example about um, uh, some people's favorite verse, Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Who is Peter writing to? Christians. So we can't look at this and say that the, and just write this off and say, well, God wants everybody in all the world to reach repentance. That is his goal. But in the end, we recognize that he has failed because everyone doesn't reach repentance. Who's the verse written to? It's written to Christians. And in fact, Peter goes beyond that even and says, to the elect. He's very clear about who those Christians, how those Christians are identified in 1 Peter chapter 1 in the introduction to that letter. So we, it's very important that we understand that they are writing to believers. So when they write words like you, 
talking to Christians. Words like beloved belong to our titles for Christians, brothers, sisters, brethren. All of these words that are used, these are titles given to Christians, saints. It's important to recognize that or else we're going to try to apply things that are intended for believers to non-believers. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You get really bad theology from that. So it's very important to remember to check that out and to remember that. Um, One of the things we can recognize uh, in the majority of the epistles in the New Testament written by Paul, he wrote 13 letters uh, of the New Testament. There is a common theme in most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, It is definitely in Romans. You see it in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Um, Those are the main books you see it in. Paul has a uh, a format that he writes letters in where you, if you look at the first half of his book, is all of the theological principle. It's all doctrine. It's all, here's what God has done, and in light of what God has done, here are the principles that flow out of that doctrinally, theologically. Very rich. But then you get to the second half of the letter, and he is essentially saying, now that you know all of that, now that you have the framework theologically, Here's what God requires of you. So you have the theological doctrinal aspect of the letter first, and then you have the moral directives that flow out of that framework. So you see God has done this. This is who God is. This is who you are in light of who God is. Um, so go and do this. Why is, why is that important? Why is that order important? Why does Paul make his letters uh, to conform to that format? Do you think? Okay, good, good. So we can't, we, he can't just give the command, go do this, and we have nothing to base it upon, certainly. So we need some kind of foundation. Uh, let's build on that idea a little bit more. What's, what's wrong with me telling you, um, don't lie, don't steal? What's wrong, what's wrong with me just telling you to do that? What's that? Okay, why can't I? I don't know why. Go ahead. Okay, it's a moralistic and can turn legalistic understanding. Why? Why, why not lie? Why not steal? That's a great question. But on top of that, I'm just telling you to do something without tying it to the fact that, oh, wait a second. Here's what Paul's going to tell us before all of that. You can't do those things. You can't not lie. You can't not steal. It's impossible. You have to understand first and foremost that you are broken, sinful, and depraved. And you want nothing at all to do with God's moral precepts. And so when he tells you don't do these things, it's all based upon the fact of, by the way, you can't not do those things, um, but Christ has accomplished that in full on your behalf. And so now... Because he has regenerated you, because you walk in the righteousness of Christ and not your own, you're not condemned when those things come into your life. You repent, you move on. Christ has paid the penalty on your behalf. You rest in the finished work of Christ and not in your ability to do these things. I can't do them. 
If I think I can, I have this moralistic system. I'm trying to earn something. I'm trying to earn God's favor. I'm trying to make God smile at me. I can't. The only reason God smiles on me is because of Jesus. So we need that structure. If Paul started with, don't do this, do this, and then later kind of sprinkled in some theological framework, we're, we're hopeless. Unfortunately, we see that very frequently in a lot of preaching. You hear that. You read that in a lot of books. There's this, uh, there's this underlying assumption that we're supposed to be something and do something, um, but because we don't uh, want to think hard and to do the hard work of studying the Scriptures and what all of these words mean, like sanctification and justification, all of these things, then... Uh, I just have a list of moral requirements with no understanding of how they're to be fulfilled when everything in me doesn't want to fulfill them. It's very, very important to understand that structure. Another thing that's very helpful in understanding uh, the structure of the book of Romans, we spent a long time talking about the relationship between the law and the gospel. Paul gives us a structure within the book of Romans that we need to look to in how the law relates to the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, through Romans chapter uh, 3 and verse um, 23 is Paul writing and telling us about law. He's telling us about the depravity of man. He's telling us about the holiness of God. What's Romans 3.23? Does anyone know it? Okay. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay. So the section on law, this is the first use of the law, which is what? I hope we remember this. What's the first use of the law? What's, what's the first reason we have the law of God? What's it do? What's that? Okay, it can. Okay, it shows the standard of God and drives us to the cross, right? It shows us you can't do this. It's what, what was the word Paul used? The law is God's what? Schoolmaster, yes, very good, thank you. Schoolmaster or taskmaster. It's, it's teaching us of our need for something outside of ourselves because we can't do it. That's Romans 1 through 3, 23. And then we see gospel starting in Romans 3, 24. He says <coughs> in 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 and verse 24 is the first time you see in the book of Romans Paul mention the grace of God in our salvation. And this goes on all the way through the end of Romans chapter 11, 11, 20, uh, 11 36. So Romans 3.24 through Romans 11.36 is gospel. What God has done, what God is doing in bringing redemption to his people who could not fulfill the precepts of the law because they were morally depraved and unable to live up to God's holy and righteous standard. 
So we got the law. It drove us to our understanding of our need for the gospel. Here's the gospel. Here's what God has done on your behalf. And then what do we have from 12, chapter 12, verse 1 through the end of, verse, of chapter 16? We had law, gospel, law. Very good. What's the, what's the last use of the law? Okay, life as a believer. So now the law is used for our sanctification, for our growth as Christians. Because I've been redeemed, because I have the righteousness of Christ, because I have a new heart and a desire to be obedient to the Lord, now you can command me to uphold the moral law, the moral standard of God, and that can be expected of me. And when I don't uphold it, I repent and I persevere in the gospel. It's for my sanctification. Look, look how quickly. Go to Romans 12. So Paul's given all of this theological framework of the law and the gospel. And go to 12 uh, verse 9. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He's all of a sudden, we have everything he gave us. Now all of a sudden, he's just going, he's just hammering us with these uh, imperatives. Do this, don't do that. Now, separated from everything he said in the first 11 chapters, that is just pure moralism. We can't do those things apart from the gospel. But now we have the gospel, and he can call us to do those things, and God requires those of his people. We've been set free now to walk in these things. So it's very, very important as we read the epistles, and this is just one example, as you read the letters of the New Testament to understand that the writers are using a specific structure as they write. If you uh, read 1 John anytime in the near future, think of it, uh, the best way I ever heard it described was um, if you think of uh, a spiral staircase in an art gallery, and if you have uh, on uh, surrounding that, the walls surrounding it are huge pieces of art that go from the floor to the ceiling. Now, as you walk around the spiral staircase, you're seeing the same artwork, but you're seeing it from all the different angles. And so you, but you continue to come around to the same place over and over. It's the same. That's how First John works. You're going to hit on certain themes, and uh, Steve and I can attest we we preached to this a couple of years ago. And sometimes you get through one chapter and you come back and you feel like, I just preached on this. I, I just did this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Why? Because John keeps coming around to the same themes. He's addressing them from a different angle. It's important to see those structures through the letters for us to understand how the writers are writing and why they're writing what they're writing. So, it's very important through letters that we pay attention to the flow of the argument and to the details within that argument. That's why typically if we're going to preach through uh, one of the letters, we're going to take it a couple verses at a time, maybe two or three verses at a time, versus going to something like a narrative portion. Remember Ecclesiastes. 
We did that in big chunks, sometimes entire chapters. There's a bigger overall uh, picture, a bigger principle to be drawn from the overall um, narrative of what's being said versus the epistles. All of the drama is in the details of the verses. Um, Another thing to recognize in the epistles is that um, almost always they are written to address some kind of problem. What were the, what were, I was going to say the problem, what were the problems in the Corinthian church? Name a few. (laughs) There were many. What were they? Okay, drunkenness, lost sexual immorality. Divisions, yeah, they're all fighting and who they're going to follow. What else? False teachers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, the false prophets that came. We see that coming in the second Corinthians. What's that? Okay, spiritual gifts and how they're to be used. Okay, we go on and on. First and second Corinthians, we have the Apostle Paul giving us, in essence... If you, if you take 1 Corinthians and what we read in his letters to the pastor Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, and we put all those together, we have a handbook on how the Christian church is to function. So these letters were written with a very practical end in, in mind. Notice Paul doesn't say, uh, go get the latest books that are available on leadership strategies, on growing your business and being profitable and getting people to put their butts in your chairs so that you can tell them what you want to tell them. That's not what Paul says. In fact, he says, preach the word in season and out of season, rebuke, exhort, and he gives all this list. Um, That's not a very effective church growth strategy. But that's not what he tells. He doesn't say Uh, Go seek the expert advice on how it is to get more people to come and be a part of what you're doing. We have all that we need in the letters that God inspired through the Holy Spirit to be written to instruct His people, His church, on how the church is to function. And we need to look to that. Um, I read, uh, I thought it was really neat, one of um, a pastor who's associated with our, uh, with ARBCA, he said he had a, a young man who was in his church. He was a new believer, um, and he went and talked to one of the visitors that had come, and he was kind of standing off to the side, and he was just wanted to listen because the first thing, if you're around it long, you'll hear this question very quick. What is a Reformed Baptist church? What does that mean? And so he asked this new believer, and the pastor kind of, he kind of held his breath to see what the guy would say because that can go in a lot of different directions. Uh, and he said, I don't really know exactly what all that means. Well, what I do know, it means that pretty much if it's not in here, then it's not up there. <laughs> and he pointed to the pulpit. That's where we need to be, that we can read the letters of the New Testament specifically and realize in these letters, God has told his people how the church is to function how his people are to communicate with one another and to love one another and to serve their neighbors and how we are to interact with culture and everything else. All of those answers have been given to us. So if it's not in here, it's not going to go on here, hopefully. That's what we strive for. 
we're seeking to always be reformed in that way. So it's important to look at those things in the epistles. Any, uh, any questions about anything in the epistles or any, anything about what I've said? Okay. We have five minutes. Apocalyptic. <laughs> in five minutes. <laughs> All right, well, we'll get started. All right, the two main books of apocalyptic literature in the Bible are Daniel, sections of Daniel, and Revelation. But neither one of them is entirely apocalyptic. Um, Daniel has, uh, the main sections of Daniel are prophetic, and Revelation, who, how does Revelation start out as a what? We're the first... Yeah, letters to the churches. So their uh, epist- uh, revelation has uh, is uh, our epistles in, in many ways. So we have to understand that sometimes a genre changes within the context of specific books. Um, now, when we get to apocalyptic literature, I cannot stress this enough, but I will try. Literary context is very, very, very very, 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 very important. I, that wasn't enough. But it's very important that we understand literary context. So, what is going on in the rest of what is written around this specific verse? This is important so we don't read about locusts in Revelation and assume that he's writing about Apache helicopters. Okay, And you think I'm making this stuff up. This is the real deal. People write books about this. Okay, It's very important that we understand context. Context, context is king. We have to understand that as we read apocalyptic literature. When you read Revelation, read it in light of the fact that there is imagery being drawn from the Old Testament. Talk of Babylon, talk of the plagues, talk of the lampstands, and all of these things that are, being, uh, that are commonly referred to in the book of Revelation, they're simply referring back to things that we saw very clearly a use for um, in the Old Testament. Um, <coughs> apocalyptic literature gives us a scheme of history... In other words, certain things are going to happen, but we don't take it in a chronological sense. Let me give you an example of why. This is an easy one. In the book of Revelation, you see a series of seven plagues. They're the plagues of seals, trumpets, and bowls. Each and every one of them ends with the destruction of the world. So, if they were chronological, we would have 21 destructions of the world. Right? So we can't read it in a chronological sense. Uh, It'd be very easy to do that. um, But we have to understand that as we read it, we're reading a scheme. History is going to uh, reveal that certain things are going to happen in a certain type of way. 
And all of that is, um, is very heavy on imagery that is used and drawn. Um, and uh, we read it very much, again, in the same sense as we would something prophetic. There's a lot of typology. There's a lot of pointing to certain things that are like something else. And remember this, too, that in the book of Revelation, John is writing about what? Where, where is John when he writes Revelation? Yeah, he's on the island of Patmos, right? Um, what, what is the bulk of Revelation telling us about? Okay? Okay? So he has a vision about um, the end of certain people, the end uh, in some, some places, certainly not as much as many people want to make it out to be, the end of this creation, the new heavens, the new earth, what heaven looks like. Um, can, can anyone um, tell me what, um, if, if we were to have a vision of what heaven looks like, you think that would be easy to describe to mortals in writing? <laughs> There's no way. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. No one has been able to behold the glories of what heaven truly is. So recognize, too, that when we see these inferences to the heavenly realms, the new heavens and the new earth, and we're trying to figure out what all of that's like, you have a man in the first century on an island in the middle of nowhere trying to describe to us what heaven is like. That's, uh, that should cause us to pause a little bit and recognize that um, not everything that we want to apply to that is going to work. Um, but I will say, in terms of Daniel and Revelation, um, it's, it's not nearly as much uh, looking forward beyond where we are now that as, as many people want to make it to be. A lot of it has been fulfilled. <laughs> A lot of it has been worked out already. All right, we're... Out of time. The main point, though, I do want to I do want to stress this. The main point, as we read apocalyptic literature, is this, and it's very clear as we read through it. God's people can endure present suffering because of their confidence that in the end, God is victor. God wins, and they know He wins not because of revelation that is prophetic but because of what Christ has already accomplished in the past through his death and his resurrection. So as we read Revelation, the greatest thing that we can see, for example, when you, see, when you read the passage about in Revelation of the martyrs crying out to God, Oh God, how long, how long, O oh Lord, until, our, uh, until vengeance, until our, our, our blood is paid for in justice? Um, we recognize that it's not forever, that God is victorious in the end, and we can hope in that. Our great hope is in the victory of God in the end because Christ has already crushed the head of Satan. But there's yet to be a final blow that will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. So um, we, need, uh, we need not make apocalyptic literature as difficult as many do and have. Um, it's, it's, not, it's really not that hard. Uh, we just need to understand how to read it. Um, that's, the, that's the main issue. 
Not to say I'm going to preach Revelation in the next five years or anything, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, it's not as hard as we make it out to be. Any thoughts, questions as we close? All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks again for uh, tonight and our opportunity to be together and to study together and uh, to have a greater understanding of how you have inspired your word uh, to be uh, what it is and have given us uh, the tools necessary in order to read and understand it and to grow in our understanding um, that we can be uh, more committed, uh, more faithful uh, followers of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we read your word, you help us to uh, recall um, all of these things that we have discussed, uh, that our, our reading and our study of the scriptures would be more rich and more fulfilling, um, that we would have greater understanding of, um, of how it all works together, and that we never forget that the Bible is one complete story from beginning to end. It's the story of Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Is the story of what you have done in creation and as a result of creation and the fall of mankind, what you have done in our redemption. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a greater grasp of the scriptures, but not only to understand the Bible and to know how to talk about the Bible, but to apply what you have given us in the Bible in order to bring you glory with our lives. And so, Lord, we pray we pray with hearts that um, recognize our own shortcomings, with hearts that realize that we are uh, still prone to sin, that we still fall into temptation. And yet we pray knowing that Christ, our Savior, has accomplished uh, that which is far greater than any of our sin in His uh, atoning death on our behalf. And so we rejoice in the glorious gospel uh, that is ours because of what you have done for us, because you have chosen to love us and call us on to yourself. Lord, help us to trust and believe and to hope in the glorious gospel. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good night.